Good morning. Uh, kids, where are you guys at? Can you guys raise your hands up this morning? Okay. So today, in our, our story, in Luke, Jesus enters Jerusalem. So he's been traveling to Jerusalem for a while now, and then today we get to the passage where he, he goes in. But as he does, like before, before he gets to the city, there's this, this story where he sends two of his disciples ahead to do something for him. So he tells these two guys, he says, go into this city, and when you get into this city, you're going to find a, a colt, a little like donkey baby that's been tied up, and uh, it, nobody's ever sat on it before. And what you're supposed to do is they're supposed to untie it, and they're supposed to bring that to Jesus. And Jesus says that if anybody gives them any trouble about that, they're just supposed to say, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus tells them, go to this village, you're going to find a donkey. Nobody's ever sat on that donkey. Bring that to me. And if anybody gives you any trouble, just say the Lord has need of it. So my question for you is, how does Jesus know there's a donkey tied up in the city that he hasn't been to yet? Philly, what do you think? Levi, what do you got? So he knows, he knows everything? Yeah, he knows what's going to happen. So that's how he knows the donkey's tied up. How does he know nobody's ever sat on the donkey? Because he's God, because he knows everything, right? If he knows that there's a donkey tied up, he can also know whether or not anybody's ever sat on it. How does he know that when his disciples untie that donkey and start to take it away, and people say, hey, what are you doing? They can just say the Lord has need of it. Same reason? Right? Because he knows everything. Jesus knows there's a donkey tied up in that village. He knows that nobody's ever sat on that donkey. He knows that if his disciples go into that city, untie that donkey, and start to bring that donkey to Jesus, that they can just say to its owners, the Lord has need of it, and they're going to be okay with that. He knows everything, and we see that in this story. Okay, here's my next question. How many of you guys ever worry about what's going to happen next? Like, what's going to happen later today? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen this week? You ever worry about that? I, I do. But one of the things that is comforting to me from a passage like this one is being reminded in a really specific way that God knows everything, right? God knows. I don't know what's going to happen later this afternoon. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week or next month or next year or next decade. I don't know what's happening next. But Jesus does, and Jesus loves us, and he cares for us, and so that should give us hope. That should encourage us. That should help us not to worry about what happens next because we know that our God and Savior, Jesus, who loves us, he does know, and he's in control of it, and he uh, works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So kids, go home today. Talk to your parents more about how God knows everything and how that should be encouraging to us. Talk to them about what they learned from this passage, about how God loves us as his people, uh, and, and spend some time together as a family talking about these things so that you might not be anxious together as a family. Uh, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. That's going to be Luke chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 28 through 48. Again, that's Luke 19, and we're going to read verses 28 through 48. 
So last week, Jesus was in Jericho, which was close to Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. Today, we get to see him enter Jerusalem, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that you sent your spirit to inspire Luke to to write down these accounts of Jesus for us, that we get to see him send his disciples ahead to to walk in the good work that he prepared beforehand. We get to see your son weeping over Jerusalem and its people and their sin. We get to see him cleanse your temple from those who would seek to pervert the worship of you. God, we pray that today that you would send your spirit to help us to to understand and apply your word this morning, that that you would use this this glimpse of Jesus we get from Luke 19, 28 through 48 to, to stir our affections for your son and who he is and what he's done for us that we would be reminded that, that He does know all things, that He does prepare good works for us to walk in, that He does uh, love His people, and, and He weeps over us and our sin. We pray that You would just meet with us now. Jesus, we thank You that You went to Jerusalem. You went to the cross to, to pay the penalty that we should have paid for our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in our passage this morning, right, we've, we've, we've finally made it to Jerusalem. 
Jesus started his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem all the way back in Luke 9.51. And since then, we've just kind of been moving along as he's been teaching and preaching and, and doing miraculous works on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Today, he enters Jerusalem. Um, and so we get to see the, the triumphal entry. We get to see him weeping over the city. And then we get to see the cleansing of the temple. So first, with the triumphal entry, we see that in verses 28 through 40. Jesus is, is traveling. He gets, he's left Jericho. That's where he was last week. He delivered the parable about the kingdom. And then it, Luke tells us that as soon as he said those things, he, he left. He, he moves on going up to Jerusalem. And when he gets near to Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany is on the, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. It's about two to three miles from Jerusalem. When he gets there, he stops and he sends two disciples, two unnamed disciples. We don't know who they are. He sends them on ahead. And I know that we've already read through this, and I talked about it to the kids, and we kind of, most of us probably know this story, and so we kind of, we know how it's going to end. We know what's coming next, but I want you to try to uh, get rid of all that knowledge for a second and, and think of what it would have been like to be one of these two disciples that Jesus asks to do this. Right? You're walking with him. You're on your way to these cities. You get close to them, but you're not there yet. And he stops and he says, hey, you two, go into this city. And when you get there, there's going to be a colt tied up. And also, this colt has never had anybody sit on it before. And I want you to untie it and bring it to me. A colt that nobody had ever sat on before would have been a, a significant thing. It would have been rare. It would have been common. This is an animal that was specifically set apart for some sort of sacred duty. So this is a significant, probably valuable animal. And so Jesus is sending these guys to get it. He's telling them that when you untie it, bring it to me. And if anybody gives you any trouble, just say the Lord has need of it. I don't know about you, uh, but this probably would have prompted a lot of follow-up questions from me. Right? How do you know there's a, a cold tied up in this city that we haven't been to yet? How do you know that nobody's ever sat on it before? How do you know that if I go in there and steal this animal, that when people question me, I can just say the Lord has need of it and that's going to be okay? How does Jesus know these things? Obviously, he knows these things because he is God, but he is calling his disciples to trust him. And to do what he says. He's calling them to walk in this good work that he has prepared beforehand for them. And so they do just that, right? They go to the city. Luke says that they found it just as he had told them. They found the colt. They found it tied up. Nobody had ever sat on it before. They begin untying it. And as they're untying it, somebody says, what are you doing untying this animal? They say, the Lord has need of it. And they bring it back to Jesus. Now here is where we need to remember the way things work. Because I think it's easy for us to look at this story, look at this account. These disciples, they, they trust Jesus, they take him in his word, they do what he says, they go into the city, they untie the colt. As people question him, they say what Jesus told them to say, they bring the colt back to Jesus. It's easy for us to look at this and think they were successful because they brought the colt back to Jesus. But that's not why they were successful. They were successful because they believed Jesus and did what he said. 
Right? These guys had zero control over whether or not there was actually a cult tied up in that village. They had zero control over whether or not anybody had ever sat on that cult before. They had zero control over whether or not the owner would let them take the donkey when they said the Lord has need of it. Jesus did all of those things. They weren't responsible for that part of it. They were just responsible for doing what Jesus said, for taking him at his word, for walking in obedience, for walking in the good work that he had prepared for them. That's why they were successful, because they trusted Jesus and did what he said. And that's the way it works for us too, right? We don't have control over all those unknowns, but we do have some measure of control over whether we put our trust in Jesus and whether we do the things that he's told us to do in his word, whether we walk in those good works that he's prepared beforehand for us. Success isn't measured by the outcome. It's measured by the obedience, by the faith that we put in Jesus and the willingness to do the things that he tells us to do. So they bring this cult back to Jesus. And Jesus, Luke tells us, after they, they throw their cloaks, some of them like kind of throw their cloaks on this colt, making a, a sort of makeshift saddle for Jesus. He sits on it, and they begin going down the road. And the question is, why? Right? Why is Jesus doing this? He's intentionally created this scene, right? He sent these disciples ahead to bring this colt back so that he could ride this colt into Jerusalem, so that this is how he wants to enter the city. And the question should be, like, why? Why does he enter the city this way? And the answer is because it is a a prophetic demonstration by Jesus. He is entering the city in this way because he's fulfilling how the Old Testament said the Messiah would enter the city. So Zechariah 9.9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus enters Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophets. He enters Jerusalem in this way because this is how the Messiah enters Jerusalem, and that is who he is. So he sends these disciples to get this colt, to bring it to him so he can sit on it and bring it into the city. And as he's doing that, right, as he's going down the mountain, his disciples, all of them, Luke tells us, begin to praise him for what's happening. Um, and this isn't that strange. On the road to Jerusalem, uh, there was lots of praise to God. Right? There's a whole section of psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. It's what the people sang when they were on their way up into Jerusalem. And so people worshiping uh, on the way to Jerusalem was not unique, but specifically the content of their rejoicing is. So the first thing Luke tells us is that they praise uh, God and rejoice with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they are praising God for the things that they've seen Jesus do. As he's been on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, they've seen lots of miraculous works, like healing the blind man on the way into Jerusalem. They have seen him do many mighty works, and they are praising God for the things that Jesus has done. Luke also tells us the content of their rejoicing. They say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's, let's break this down. Let's break down their praise here. The first thing they say is, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is 
almost a direct quote of Psalm 118.26. That's one of those psalms of ascent that the people sang on the way to Jerusalem. They would greet each other by saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are the, the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. But they, they tweak that a little bit. They add in a word. They add in the word king. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are recognizing who Jesus is as he's entering the city as the Messianic king, and they are greeting him accordingly. It's important for us to realize that Jesus doesn't become king because he enters the city this way. Right? He already is the Messiah. He already is the king. He's entering the city in this way because that's who he is. And people are praising him in these ways and for these things because of who he is and what they've seen him do. The next thing they say is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is really similar to what the angels said back at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. Only there it was glory in the highest and peace on earth. Here it's peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I think we see this shift in their worship of Jesus because of what's about to happen, right? Jesus is going into Jerusalem to go to the cross, to suffer and die, to make a way for there to be peace in heaven between God and his people. And one day, he's going to bring that peace down here once and for all. They are praising Jesus for what he's done, all the mighty works that they have seen. They're praising him for who he is. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're praising him for what he's about to do in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are worshiping Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he will do. The Pharisees, they don't like this. Right? They're the ones that are supposed to get the praise. Not some guy who's riding on a donkey. They're the ones the people are supposed to like and look up to and worship and honor. And so they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. God's Messiah is entering God's city. And he is going to be worshipped for that. If the disciples were bound and gagged by the Pharisees, someone else would praise him for what he's doing. Jesus says the rocks themselves would cry out. As he gets closer to the city, uh, Luke tells us that when he could see Jerusalem, he wept over the city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is not all that different from what we saw when we went through the book of Isaiah, right? There there is judgment being pronounced on uh, one of the cities of the people of God, here Jerusalem specifically. He's saying an enemy is going to rise up against them to take them down, to pour out judgment on them because, he says, they did not know the time of uh, their visitation. He's referring to the fact that the Messiah is entering the city. God has sent his Savior. God has sent his Redeemer. Everything that he promised in the Old Testament is coming to fruition in Jesus entering Jerusalem, and the people reject it, rebel against him, and then call for his execution. And Jesus is saying, because of what's about to happen, because of their rejection, this judgment is going to fall. But the most important thing for us to see here is not that judgment is going to fall, but Jesus' response to their sin and the judgment that is going to fall. He, he weeps over the city. 
He weeps over the people. He weeps over their sin. He weeps over the judgment that's about to fall. I think that that seeing Jesus in this way and and understanding what's happening here has a, a lot of potential to transform the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our sin, and most importantly, the way we think about Jesus. You see, there are all kinds of caricatures out there of of who God is and how he responds to us in our sin, right? God is is like a kid with a magnifying glass, and and we're the ants. Or he's this kind of vengeful sadist that just likes to punish us. Or maybe he's the, the angry man upstairs, and we just don't want to upset him. But that's not who he is in Scripture, That's not who he is in Luke 19.41. In Luke 19.41, we see the God of the universe. We see the creator of everything. We see his Messiah, the Savior, who's about to enter this city to die for us and for our sin, not angry about the sin of the people, not upset that they're about to reject him, not vengeful, but weeping over them and their sin and the judgment that's about to fall. When we sin, when I sin, when you sin, when we reject him, when we rebel against him, when we satisfy for some, or, or settle for something other than him, when we look to an idol to worship it instead of worshiping him, our God isn't primarily vengeful. He's not looking to punish us. He's not just angry with us. He is broken for us and for our sin. He weeps over us in our sin because he knows who we really are. He knows what he created us for. He knows why he made us. He knows why he redeemed us. He knows what we've been designed for. And so he knows when we settle for something less, when we turn to sin instead of him, we are trading what he's created us for for something far lesser. And he's broken for that. He weeps because of that. Because he loves us. Right? Even before he goes to the cross, even before he enters the city and dies for them, Jesus loves them, even though they're going to reject him, even though they're going to call for his execution, even though judgment is going to fall, he weeps for them and he weeps for us because he loves us. Jesus loves us. The Bible tells us so. It's not just a kid's song. It's good theology. It's what we see when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. That's what we need to get from this passage this morning. That's what we need to to hear and see when we are face to face with the Savior who, as he's coming to this city, to be condemned by them for their sin and for our sin, he weeps for them. He weeps for us and he weeps for our sin. As soon as he enters Jerusalem, Luke says that he, he goes to the temple and he begins to drive out uh, those who sold. What's happening here is that in some of the outer courts of the temple, there were people that, that had tables set up. And they used those tables to sell people the necessary sacrifices that needed to be offered or to exchange currency so they could pay the temple tax in the, the right kind of form. Um, and so what these people are doing is they're, they're profiting over other people's worship. They're making themselves rich inside the temple where worship is supposed to happen uh, so that they can better themselves. Jesus, Luke says, drive, began to drive them out. 
the Gospel of John tells us that he made a whip. And so this is, this is an aggressive move from Jesus. He is aggressively chasing these people out of the temple. And he says that it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. These people are perverting the worship of God in his temple. And Jesus drives them out because of it. And then Luke says he taught in the temple daily. He begins to do the things that are supposed to be done in the temple. Not exchanging money, not making themselves rich. They're supposed to be teaching there. And so he does that. And Luke says the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. This is the the Jewish religious establishment. They want him gone. They want to destroy him. They want to kill him. But Luke says that they couldn't find anything to do because all the people were hanging on his work. So they begin to form this strategy to get him out of the way because they don't like that the people worship him, that the people look to him instead of them. And so they are looking for a way to destroy Jesus. And that's going to happen in the coming chapters. Now, uh, a question that we might have at this point is, is how does what happens in the cleansing of the temple mesh with what I said about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem? I said that he wasn't primarily angry about our sin, but as he's chasing people out of the temple, he seems like he might be. And so which one is it? Is he, is he angry with us or is he not angry with us? Is he, does he weep over us in our sin or does he make a whip and begin to chase us away from it? I think that it's important to recognize that the cleansing of the temple is a very specific example. Um, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for situational ethics, but I think that what we see here is... People in the temple that were part of the leadership of the temple putting a system in place to stop people from worshiping, to pervert their worship, to to lead them astray, to do something in a place uh, that wasn't supposed to be done. And so I think that what we see here is Jesus reacting to a specific kind of sin, right? All through Scripture, there are warnings against using your power to oppress and, and mislead those underneath you. Um, and I think this is a uh, Jesus delivering on one of those warnings. These people had used their power not to uh, assist those in worship, not to serve them and help them worship God, but to, to hinder their worship, to make it so they could only worship if they had the right kind of money or if they went to their table and spent their money in the temple so they could worship God in the way that he calls them to. They weren't helping them worship. They were profiting from their worship. I think this is a, a different circumstances. Jesus is taking a stand against those who would use their positions of power to oppress those underneath them. So in this passage, we see Jesus as king entering the city where he's going to die for us in our sin. He's already made his way to Jerusalem. We've been with him on this journey for 10 chapters. He's been going to city after city, ministering to people along the way, knowing full well what's going to happen to him in the city. He's going there on purpose. Luke said in 9 that he was setting his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus was determined to go there. He knew what was going to happen to us. And in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus' love for us, not just when he weeps over the city, but in all these chapters we've been through, following him on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, he set his face toward Jerusalem because he loves us, so that he could go to the cross, so that he could pay the penalty that we should have paid, so that he could die in our place and make a way for us to be redeemed, make a way for us to be brought into his family, made a way for us to have access to his Father, made a way for us to worship God rightly. 
we see Jesus in this passage entering Jerusalem, weeping over it and driving those out of the temple because of the love that he has for his people, because of the love that he has for us. So I hope that you, from this passage, walk away with with that reality firmly fixed in your mind and in your heart, that God loves you. He loves me, and we see proof of that in this passage. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you that because you so loved the world, you sent your Son, knowing full well what would happen to him, how the world would respond. You loved us and sent him anyway. We pray that you would Use your spirit. Use your sovereignty in your creation, in this world, to tangibly remind us as your people of how you love us. That when we sin, we would know that you are broken for us and for our sin, even more than we are because you know who you created us to be more than we do. You know why you've put us in this church and in this community, in our families and at our jobs. You know what it is that you desire from us and the ways in which we and our sin hold us back from that. So we pray that you would Remind us of how you love us and that you came to free us from sin so that we could walk in the life that you created us for. We pray that you would send your spirit to continue to meet with us as we worship you in the rest of the service, as we celebrate, Jesus, your death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs of praise and worship, as we fellowship together afterwards, um, that you would help us to walk in the good works you've prepared beforehand for us, knowing that our success is based not on the outcome, but our faith and obedience in you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that you went to Jerusalem. It's in your name we pray. Amen.